1: And $30 off your first box when you go to WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. That's WildGrain.com slash Pantsuit. Or you can use promo code Pantsuit at checkout. Between the American Healthcare Act and the investigation into leaks and the Trump campaign's possible coordination with Russia, it feels like Washington,
0: D.C. is unraveling. We're discussing the facts of FISA, Michael Flynn, and the AHCA failure. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today, we are covering the failure of the healthcare bill and the pearls, as well as attacks in London and Cincinnati, Ohio. In the suit, we're going to talk about FISA, Michael Flynn, and where the investigation into the Trump administration stands. And then in the heels, we're going to talk about what we're thinking about other than politics.
1: So we're kicking off the pearls with a discussion of the American Healthcare Act failure. And I'm not saying this completely undoes our terrible job predicting the election. But hey, we both said this was going to fail and it did. So there's one more in our in our column after the, the the bad prediction that happened over the election.
0: Well, I think that's right. And I think that we had a good sense that it it wasn't only going to fail, it wasn't even going to see the light of a vote, mm-hmm. which is ultimately what happened at Paul Ryan's urging. According to most reporting, President Trump ultimately decided to just pull the bill from consideration. So who are you think?
1: Give me your biggest winners and biggest losers.
0: <laughs> um, I think probably the biggest winners are the American people Word. because we're not going to be subjected to a half-assed attempt at reforming Medicaid under the guise of reforming health care.
1: Well, and there was a tweet where somebody was like, you know, they were on Medicaid and they had a disabled child or something. And they I mean, there were people who were legitimately panicked and incredibly anxious and stressed about this perhaps going through. So hooray for those
0: people. This just never made any sense. You know, from the beginning, it was critiqued on all sides. And I think that's because it It was it was hurried, you know. The idea that they had spent seven years on this made no sense at any point. And so, I mean, I think I don't think anybody in Washington D.C. looks great coming out of this. Though, I mean, Paul Ryan's ability to govern is certainly in question. The president looks like someone who doesn't have the attention span to talk about a piece of legislation for more than a few days without getting bored and pissed off and ready to move on to something else. Democrats just kind of had to sit around and look pretty because they knew anyway this went down, it was good for them. So it's just, it was a pretty miserable failure of leadership, period. You know, I think the moderate Republicans and the Freedom Caucus might have good things to say, but in the long run, this just looks like you can't give Republicans the keys because they don't know how to drive.
1: Somehow I feel like, I don't know if I'd call him a winner, but Mitch McConnell, because this died on the House and it's all being laid at Paul Ryan's feet primarily, seems to come out a little bit ahead compared to some other Republicans. I mean, I feel like the Senate, at least the Senate Republicans sort of look like the grownups in the room because from the begin there was no even discussion from the beginning that they were going to consider it. So right. I, I, I think that they got out a little bit ahead. I think the biggest loser is... Paul Ryan, and maybe Ryan's Priebus, and anybody in the White House who pushed, we're going to do this first, and we're going to do this before tax reform, because that's who Trump is going to blame, I feel like. I think that he, you know, I'd call him, I, I, I just, my opinion of his ability to govern is so low, I'm not really sure if this hurt it at all. I was, you know, from the beginning, I've said, he, you don't just walk into the Oval Office, and even though you have a lot of authority and power, you're dri- you're driving a really big bus here. And the complications of governing, even when you have control of both houses of Congress, which is really what kind of blows my mind about this whole thing, when I really sit back and think, I can't believe they couldn't even get it to a vote in the House. just shows how complicated this, but we knew that about him. We knew, like, I posted a quote on our Facebook page from a New York Times piece where that some Freedom Caucus members and, like, as anonymous sources were talking about how, like, he didn't understand the policy or even the legislative process, which sort of blows my mind, but... I don't know if this feels more like just confirming sort of the bad opinions a lot of people had about his ability to govern. But Paul Ryan, you know, kind of came in and was the one who was going to lead the house and got the, you know, sort of remember when he became speaker. It was this very much like, well, he, you know, he heard it. He's supposed to be the adult. Yeah, Yeah, he's the adult. He's going to get stuff done. And so I think he is probably the person who suffered most under this failure. And can I just say something else that really bugs me about the narrative coming out of him and a few other Republicans? Is this idea that he was like, well, you know, all we've done for 10 years is oppose and now we have to figure out how to actually build consensus. Hey, jerkwad. You could have been practicing those skills for the last 10 years instead of just opposing everything. Like these skills, these consensus building skills, maybe you could have tried on a couple when Democrats were in charge. Like that, that whole attitude was so, or when we had a Democrat in the White House anyway, like that idea of like, you, we just opposed when you had control of the House of Representatives, like, just made me so angry, like, that you – maybe you'd be better at building consensus among your own party if you'd even tried a little bit with the other party itself. You know, I just – that
0: narrative really pissed me off. Well, it was just a terrible speech, too. He needs a new speechwriter. It was painful listening yeah. to him say – It was very – Doing but, big things is hard. Yeah, really? it was very That's George Bush. Remember George Bush? Being president is hard work. Remember that debate? Oh, my gosh. You know, here's what, here's my silver lining on this, though. I mean, the House of Representatives often to me seems like such a bad idea because so much chaos and nonsense goes on in the House of Representatives. But it was good, I think, in this process to see that control doesn't get confined even in a majority because there are so many people to corral in the House of Representatives that there's still space. For all these different factions and all these different ideas. And this was a very clear representation of the fact that the Republican tent is pretty big and has a lot of disagreement within it. And I think that's reassuring. You know, it's, it's a good example of how things are supposed to be hard. Things are supposed to take a long time. Things are supposed to be – it's supposed to be sausage making, right? And so mm-hmm. I think the process worked in that way. Like we can say, gosh, what a failure for Republicans to not cram this through the House. Or we can say, what a success of our system that you can't cram a bad bill through even when you have the majority.
1: Yeah, I do feel like, you know, if we learned anything over the first, what are we, what day are we on? Like 85 days? How many days
0: are we on? Oh, here? no, I think we're 70 something now, I think.
1: And the 70 days is that our process is up to, so far to the challenges of a Trump presidency. And I think that I mean, I do I sort of bristle a little bit at the idea of the Republican Party as a big tent, because I think it is more reflective of the fact that when you elect people who do not want who do not trust the government to run the government, you're going to run into some uh, brick walls. And I think this is one of them. I don't think this was I don't think these were legitimate disagreements about how to best provide health care, like you said, they were, it's not like they were crafting some sort of complex policy. This was, we want to shut all of it down, you know, and the fact that they were trying to throw these carrots with the uh, getting away of essential benefits is just so sort of upsetting and I think reflective of the overall approach to governance. But, you know, governing from this idea of government's terrible
0: is problematic. Well, I have some pushback on that. I think there were legitimate disagreements. I think there were three camps. The, the Paul Ryan camp was a mishmash of people who are fiscal hawks, which is his driving force, right? So fiscal hawks whose goal is to reduce the spend of the federal government on Medicaid. And then mixed in with those folks were people who just wanted to do something on Obamacare because they've been saying they would for a long time. And then I think you had the Freedom Caucus folks who genuinely believe that we need a clean repeal because government has no business in healthcare. And that's a legitimate position, it's a different position than the one that I hold. But I get it. And I sort of respect. I mean, I do think there is a pure ideology running through the Freedom Caucus. It is like you say that government shouldn't do much of anything. But we need that voice in the process, too. And I think, you know, we'll talk more about that probably in the suit. There's a place for that voice. I think there's a place for that voice. I just don't think they should be running the show. And they're not. I mean, it's a a small number of people, but but they have enough power working together to prevent things from happening, which is kind of their goal anyway. Right. And so then I think the third group are the more moderate Republicans, which is where I probably would have been in this debate, who legitimately think that this bill went too far in stripping away benefits from the neediest Americans. And I, I think those were substantive policy disagreements in this group. Well, so beyond our Congress, lots of important things happened this week, including an attack in London. This was on March 22nd, and we sort of dropped it in our episodes last week because there was so much going on in the United States. But we wanted to point out that a British man stabbed a police officer and rammed his car into a crowd on Westminster Bridge in just a horrific attack and the man, whose name is Khalid Massoud, has been convicted twice of knife attacks previously. The latest reporting on this is confusing. It suggests that Mr. Massoud had made three trips to Saudi Arabia during his lifetime. So I think the police in London are still trying to understand whether this was an act of uh, terrorism as a result of having been radicalized, or if this is someone who has some severe disturbances and that his time in, in incarceration contributed to his radicalization. I mean, I think we just still don't know what the motive is here beyond this is a severely disturbed person who did something horrific.
1: So speaking of something horrific, and sadly, there was an also an attack in Cincinnati. Beth's sort of nearby adopted hometown
0: and what have we learned since the original
1: uh shooting took place beth
0: so this happened at about one o'clock on sunday morning in a nightclub that is about 20 miles from where i live Uh, one person was killed, 15 people were injured. The police say this was not an act of terrorism, that a dispute among a group of men started early in the day on Saturday and escalated, culminating in this gun attack at the nightclub. So that's about all we know right now. You know, our mayor has said, and I thought this was a good statement from Mayor John Cranley that, okay, it wasn't a terrorist attack, but people are still feeling terrorized by being victims of gun violence in our city. And it's just unacceptable. So, I was really sad. I woke up in the middle of the night and I have this terrible habit of checking my phone in the middle of the night as though I can do anything about anything that's on it. But I saw the CNN breaking news alert and just couldn't go back to sleep afterward thinking about something like this happening so close to where I live.
1: I think that's a really
0: great way to put it, what he said,
1: that you feel terrorized, even though it's not an act of terrorism. That's great. Absolutely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash
0: pantsuit. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days, and it is offered in more than forty cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives—that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great, and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com/pantsuit for twenty percent off your first system. That's o-l-i-v-e-a-n-d-j-u-n-e.com/p-a-n-t-s-u-i-t for twenty percent off your first Manny system. So, Sarah, do you want to compliment the other side? Yes, despite what I just said,
1: <laughs> I would like to. I would like to compliment the Freedom Caucus. I was just thinking that, you know, I, I think that my opinion of the Freedom Caucus was probably a little s- more skeptical than I wanted to admit, and that I wondered if they held these opinions just to get elected, but. And maybe some of them do, and there's always, you know, both things can be true. But, you know, I think this healthcare debate shows that they feel very strongly about certain issues and that the government should not be involved in them, no matter how upset people are going to be if you take these benefits away. And way to stick to your guns, guys. Just it happened to be that you and I uh, both wanted this legislation to die, so it worked out great. But I do think I have a little more respect for their purity of opinion, I suppose.
0: So I'm going to compliment a group of Democratic senators and representatives, Tom Udall is a senator of New Mexico, Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, Tom Carper of Delaware, and then Representative Mike Quigley of Illinois have introduced an act to try to increase transparency in the Trump administration. Now, I am not really into cutesy acronyms, and they they have the take the cake cutesy acronym for this act. It's the Making Access Records Available to Lead American Government Openness Act. Or the Mar a Lago Act. Ha uh, See what they requires, did there? See what they I, did there? I, I do see what they did there. They tried <laughs> real hard on that one. Um, but it would require the publication of White House visitor logs, something that many administrations have done regularly and voluntarily, but has ended since President Trump took office. It would mandate the release of visitor logs at other locations where the president conducts business. And I think that's important, and I think yeah, it's a he's good step not forward. Being honest,
1: this weekend didn't he say like, "Oh, I'm taking meetings," but he was clearly playing golf. Like I don't think he's exactly being forthcoming.
0: Well, and I do think that who goes in and out of the White House should be a matter of public record, with exceptions. And I don't know what this act contemplates in terms of. Exceptions or redactions, but I, I think for the most part this is an important practice, and I like anything that adds to transparency in our government. So, um, I I tip my hat to them with a little bit of a an asterisk for you don't have to try so hard with the name. <laughs> I like it, not surprisingly. <laughs> So up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the details of the FISA process and what's up with our buddy, Michael Flynn. Is he our buddy? I don't know. I just I wanted to say something other than just Michael Flynn. So (laughs) I mean, I don't know if his current rumors are true. He might very well be our buddy. The recurring character, (laughs) the, the, the ever mysterious Michael Flynn. Ugh. So does everybody have their seatbelts fastened for a little primer, (laughs) a little mini primer on FISA? Um, When I talked with Katherine Gibson on Friday, she talked about how important it is for all of us to better understand these processes. And it does take some patience. So I did a lot of research relying heavily on a white paper from the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which I will link in the show notes. There are some excellent resources available on government websites which i just sounds... really like white papers i just like the name i feel super fancy <laughs> when i talk about them
1: i just like whenever they say on the vox the weeds they talk about white papers a lot and i just think it is so official sounding
0: well so i i found some great official stuff that we will share on pansypoliticsshow.com in connection with this episode so fISA stands for the foreign intelligence surveillance act It was enacted in 1978 to protect Americans' privacy in the midst of counterterrorism efforts. So essentially, FISA sounds like something that gives the government all kinds of power in the way we discuss it. But it was enacted to take away power from the president acting unilaterally. Because before the enactment of FISA, the president felt like under the protect and defend responsibilities in the Constitution, that if he was worried about national security, he could do whatever he wanted. To figure out what was going on there. Was this like a reaction to Whitewater? I mean, Watergate. Sorry. Well, it escal- All of the concerns about limitations on power escalated during Watergate, so I think it is fair to say that you know, 1978. That's. I think that's fair to say that there's a connection there. Before Watergate happened, there was a case in front of the Supreme Court, Keith, that involved the court urging Congress to establish some kind of judicially manageable process for dealing with national security surveillance. The defendant, I think in the Keith case, had raised concern about how certain evidence was collected, and the court said that the Fourth Amendment doesn't contain a national security exception. So if you're doing surveillance on an American citizen, even if you have national security concerns, the Fourth Amendment applies. And so that sort of kicked off the conversation about this, and the need became even more obvious during the Watergate scandal. So... Congress wrote FISA, President Carter signed it into law. Four big things to know about the initial act. First, non-criminal electronic surveillance can only occur for the purpose of collecting foreign intelligence and foreign counterintelligence. So you can't spy on people in connection with domestic crime. Second, foreign powers and agents of foreign powers could be targeted for electronic surveillance. And the statute defines foreign powers and agents of foreign powers And it explicitly says they have to be non-U.S. persons. U.S. persons is a term that came up over and over in the Comey and Rogers hearing. It is a defined term in the intelligence community, and it means citizens. It also means legal permanent residents in the United States. So non-citizens covered by this, too. Also U.S. corporations and unincorporated associations with a substantial number of members who are citizens or lawful permanent residents. So it's pretty broadly defined. Third, it says the government needs probable cause to conduct surveillance, and it sets a standard for that. And fourth, it established courts to oversee this. So foreign intelligence surveillance surveillance courts at the district and appellate levels can review applications for FISA warrants. The FISC, so the district-level court, is comprised of 11 federal district judges appointed by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. They serve a maximum of seven years in staggered terms. Three of those judges have to live within 20 miles of Washington, D.C., but there has to be geographic diversity. At least seven judicial districts have to be represented. The court of review for that initial court, so the appellate level, is three judges appointed by the chief justice. So... FISA was expanded in 1995 to include physical searches, not just electronic searches, which again is a recognition of limitation on the president's power. In 1998, provisions were added on pen registers and trap and trace. So now we're including phone calls, email, and all electronic forms of communication. But again, it specifically prohibited investigation of U.S. persons for those activities. So issues that come up... (laughs) That led to further amendments. Often the collection of information under FISA leads to collection of evidence of domestic crimes, which is not the intention of the surveillance. So the FBI started, the FBI and the NSA and the intelligence community in general started establishing these procedures that are known as the wall. And there was this primary purpose test. So if you're going to collect information under FISA, the primary purpose of that collection has to be foreign intelligence and counterintelligence. And the wall is this idea that intelligence agencies are very careful about what they do and don't disclose to law enforcement agencies. And it it led to a lot of tension between the law enforcement community and the intelligence community. The Patriot Act changed all of that.
1: So acronym 2001.
0: Alert. I'm sorry. Acronym alert. Acronym alert. Yes. Would you like to talk about the Patriot Act, Sarah?
1: Oh, Lord. No, you're doing a good job. You keep up this front. Okay.
0: <laughs> so the Patriot Act is providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Again, eye roll for me. I, I don't think I that knew that. that was an
1: acronym, actually.
0: It is, and quite a, a forced one. So. Mm-hmm. Patriot Act happened right after September 11. The purposes were to enhance the government's ability to share intelligence, strengthen criminal laws against terrorism, remove obstacles to investigating terrorism, and update law to reflect new technologies. So the big change for FISA under the Patriot Act was that instead of saying that foreign intelligence has to be the purpose of a FISA warrant, now it just has to be a significant purpose. But you can do FISA activity for other purposes, namely law enforcement. In 2002, the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, which is part of the Department of Justice, asked the FISC, so that's the court established under the original FISA Act, to remove the wall that separated law enforcement and foreign intelligence collection. The FISC declined, and it wrote a whole bunch of minimization standards trying to maintain some kind of balance between effectuating the Patriot Act and limiting the use of information obtained by really intrusive methods under FISA. Department of Justice appealed to the Court of Review that was established under the FISA Act, and that court said that the lower court was wrong and was trying to in-run the Patriot Act, and that the wall did not survive the Patriot Act. So, current state, disclosure and use of FISA information has to be for a lawful purpose. It has to be accompanied by an admonishment that FISA-derived information can only be used in a criminal proceeding with the advanced authorization of the Attorney General. The government has to give notice to the criminal defendant and the court if it's going to use FISA-derived information in a criminal proceeding, and that's to allow the defendant to have a chance to contest the use of that evidence. There are no exceptions to the attorney general having to approve disclosure in advance. And interestingly, the government has never publicly produced a copy of the application to obtain a FISA warrant. If that has to be reviewed in court, a judge reviews it in camera, defense counsel for the criminal does not get to see it. I mean, that is a big deal. Like, If you've taken any kind of class about criminal law, that sort of is eye-popping information. Okay, there were amendments to FISA passed in 2008. Then Senator Barack Obama was part of writing those amendments. Those amendments included Section 702, which if you watched the Comey-Rogers hearing, you heard a little bit about. Section 702 lets the government collect email and other communications of non-U.S. persons. Over 25% of the NSA's intelligence relies on 702 information. This section expires at the end of 2017, so when you kept hearing Trey Gowdy talk about reauthorization, this is what he was talking about. It has been widely criticized because of two aspects of the program. The first is PRISM. So I'm going to do my best here, y'all, but like I am way out of my depth on all of this, so hang with me. In PRISM, the government identifies a selector, which is a specific piece of information, like an email address, that is linked to a foreign terror organization. The government has to certify that that selector relates to a non-U.S. person located outside the United States. And then the selector can be turned over to an internet service provider and used to sift through enormous amounts of information to decide what's going to be analyzed. So all the data collected through PRISM goes to the NSA, and then the NSA analyzes it and can decide what, if anything, it needs to share with the FBI or the CIA. So PRISM is one aspect. Upstream collection is the other aspect. This relies on the backbone infrastructure, so not the internet service provider, but the telecommunications infrastructure that's kind of the next level behind the internet service provider. It can involve about communications as well. So with PRISM, the selector is usually going to be a to or a from in an email. In the upstream collection program, an email could just reference a selector and it can be gathered up in this process. So both of these things, as you can imagine, lead to the collection of a whole bunch of information that is not the subject of the FISA warrant. And that is incidental collection. And so you heard about that in the hearing as well. And as Congressman Schiff put it, even if just the name of a U.S. person is picked up in the course of all this communication, the the fact of that name being in the communication is incidental collection. So it's anything that gets grabbed up with all this other information.
1: Well, and that seems to be a privacy concern that comes up in lots of surveillance discussions, I was listening to "Note to Self," one of my favorite podcasts, and they were talking about stingrays, which are what a lot of local police forces use to find people using their cell phone signal. And it's like it, they described it as Marco Polo, like that. The stingray says Marco and, and makes the the cell phones think I think that it's like a tower, and then all the cell phones surrounding answer Polo. But if you're just looking for one cell phone, you now have all the information of the other cell phone saying Polo too, and so. You know, it's like the ability for our government to to engage in these surveillance technological pursuits has so outpassed our law's ability to deal with the privacy implications of all that incidental collection on lots of levels, not just with FISA. And
0: and the technology itself, it's hard to know whether we have the capability to be more targeted and aren't using it or if there's just if the the volume of data is outpacing the search technology if does that make sense yeah definitely i think it's both those things so there are all these minimization procedures in Section 702 itself that the FBI and the NSA use, and that the FISC mandates to try to limit what happens with this incidental collection. And one of those minimization procedures is masking, which was talked about in the hearing as well. So what that means is just if Sarah and I are talked about in a communication picked up by the NSA... Instead of referring to Sarah and Beth, the NSA is going to talk about individual A and individual B. And no one is supposed to know the identities behind individual A and B unless we are unmasked. And about 20 people, according to Director Rogers in the NSA, have the authority to unmask those names. More people in the FBI have that authority because by the time the information gets to the FBI, you're usually talking about domestic crime because that's what the FBI does. So unmasking can occur if it is necessary in an investigation and the agencies involved have probable cause to believe that criminal conduct is occurring. So that is kind of a quick overview of all of the stuff behind Trump's tweet on wiretapping and the conversation about General Flynn, which is where we're going next, because the reason General Flynn was asked to resign is that there was intelligence collected about conversations he was having with foreign agents. And General Flynn is most certainly a U.S. person. And so the fact that someone knew his identity meant that he had been unmasked, right, and then leaked that to the press, If you think about all of the secrecy surrounding FISA that we just talked about, I can be a criminal defendant and have FISA-derived evidence used against me without my lawyer ever seeing why the FISA warrant was obtained. So that is a secret process in our system. It is a very big deal that General Flynn's identity has made its way into the New York Times and the Washington Post based on conversations picked up through this process.
1: Well, and the biggest um, news coming out of about Flynn now is that he is a U.S. person, but apparently he was also a foreign agent at the time because of a $530,000 contract from August to November 2016 that was being done for a business, an Inovo, Inovo, owned by a Turkish businessman that could have benefited the Turkish government. And what blows my mind about this is that apparently his attorneys told the Trump campaign twice and the transition that he was going to register as a foreign agent because of this contract. And both times they were like, no, it's up to you. You just decide if you,
0: who are these lawyers, man? I don't know. I don't understand why this wasn't just a disqualifying conflict like where they could have said, "Hey, thanks for all your help with the campaign. You're we're not going to put you in an intelligence role given that you're <laughs> making money off a of this foreign agent." I mean, so
1: they also said former CIA director James Woolsey says he was in a meeting involving Turkish officials in Flynn and members of Flynn's consulting group on September 19th in New York City. He said the discussion involved removing a Turkish cleric from the U.S. without going through the extradition process. The Turkish president has accused Gulen of orchestrating, the, the cleric, of orchestrating a failed coup. He was living in Pennsylvania with a valid green card, and the Turkish president had requested his extradition. So far, the U.S. government has denied the extradition request. And is this the meaning that
0: people are saying that um, Devin Nunes was president? I believe that it is. And this is a big deal because, again, it would be evidence of Flynn acting as an arm of the U.S. government before he was confirmed to his position and before the administration transitioned. It And as he was being paid as a foreign agent. Don't forget that part. And as he was being paid as a foreign agent. And if... The former director Woolsey's report is true, it would also have him contemplating basically a process outside the legal process for taking someone out of the United States and re- returning that person to a country where the person is going to be accused of orchestrating a coup against the country's I mean, I leader. Just
1: don't... That's
0: a big deal.
1: Um, uh, I don't, I'm sorry that I wish I was more articulate, but this is bananas. I know I used, to, I'm using that word increasingly often, but I, what? And then we made him the National Security Advisor? I'm so confused. I don't understand how any of this happened. I mean, I guess I do because I was just saying at the beginning of the show that, uh, you know, he has no experience governing. And so, I mean, do you think that... There is the – how how important do you think the strategy and approach of the president is? I know that sounds like a crazy question. Give me a second. Go with me here. Like, how much do you think this could – these sort of things could happen and things could get off the rails rather quickly if the pres- personality of the president is not – such that there is somebody that sort of understands the processes or shuts these sort of things down, knows who to hire, knows who. I don't. I mean, I just don't know how much of this is a result of Trump, of the people around him, of his lack of experience, of their willingness to exploit the situation. I don't. I just don't. I don't I'm. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it.
0: I think there are varying degrees of risk tolerance of human beings, right? And a real estate developer is probably going to have a very high degree of risk tolerance. You don't do what Trump has done without that willingness to win big and lose big and go at it again. And I think it is not uncommon for business people like Trump, and and particularly in the real estate space, to be willing to read laws in the most favorable light to them and take their risks on civil litigation. And so I think over time, you know, you think again about the fact that Trump is 70. He's probably cultivated a casualness about legality yeah, and risk that's true. over his career. This is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, this ain't civil litigation, friend. Right. But I think that probably that attitude doesn't turn on a dime, yeah. you know? But like, where are the people? I mean, I guess the truth is the people in his
1: ear, particularly Steve Bannon, no experience, no governmental experience. Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, no governmental experience. You know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's just nobody to say, like, where are the people saying you, this is illegal? This is crazy. We can't do this.
0: Well, that's the question for me. If if he has used lawyers throughout his career as people who help him remove obstacles, he needs to reframe his idea of lawyers because the kind of lawyers he needs around around him now are lawyers who will say exactly what you said. He needs lawyers who are not risk tolerant at all Mm. right now helping advise him on these national security matters. And that's what I keep thinking about Congressman Nunes as well. Where are the lawyers? Are you talking to anyone? If I were on the House Intelligence Committee, I would like to think that I would have a really good team of people around me who could constantly advise me on... What's appropriate to share with the public? What is not appropriate to share with the public? When I get information, what's the order that I can release that information in, if at all? You know, I. Where are the lawyers? That is my. Maybe question. that should be the title <laughs> of this episode. Where are the lawyers? Where
1: are the lawyers? Oh. The lawyers
0: are really important in all of this. So,
1: in the extra twist, because this story needed additional twist, and that's what I was going to say too, as far as with regards to President Trump and. I feel like the ship maybe has sailed. I'm not sure the best lawyer at this point could write the trajectory of this story because I think, you know, this stuff happened and it's just a matter of time until it all comes out. So a CNN commentator has suggested that perhaps, um, and she did cite some sources, I believe, or said she had sources that were indicating that Michael Flynn might be working with the FBI now and might have flipped on Trump. And I mean, he's in, it would seem to me, With regards to the foreign agent stuff and the the he already had a little ding for working on behalf of the U.S. government beforehand. And if this Muslim cleric stuff is true, he could be facing real legal charges. So why wouldn't he flip? I guess. Right.
0: I don't know. I mean, when I read the account from Director Woolsey, former Director Woolsey, about this meeting with Turkish officials, it read as very. Thin to me, it it feels like smoke, right? But it's hard for me to tell if there's a fire. And he was careful to say, you know, he was uncomfortable, but he didn't think it was maybe blatantly illegal. So how much Michael Flynn feels that he's been pushed into a corner right now? I don't know. He does seem to be the person who would have the biggest axe to grind right now because I, I could see him feeling scapegoated by being forced to resign. It's, I don't know what to think. Right? It's <laughs> like, so crazy. I don't, and, I don't
1: know. Well, and they're reporting that additional people are now speaking to the FBI voluntarily. I wonder who they
0: are. Well, I know that Carter Page and Roger Stone are going to voluntarily talk with the House Intelligence Committee. It sounds like they might not be under oath when they have that conversation, though, and that's going to happen in a closed-door meeting, which is also the Chairman Nunez Philosophy. Uh, and Paul Manafort, I think that too, at right? Some point, Paul Manafort, I think, is going to testify. Yeah. No, or uh, maybe not testify, but speak with the committee. So I don't know. I mean, we're just, we're in such a crazy time. And I do hope that Congressman Schiff and both Republicans and Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee insist on open hearings as much as possible throughout this process, because nothing is going to get better here with the door closed. Mm. So a question that I have for you, Sarah, putting aside as much as we can, all of the kind of spy novel facts that we're living in, what do you think about the ability of the NSA to do what Section 702 authorizes? If you were sitting in Congress, would you vote to reauthorize it at the end of the year?
1: Not as it stands. No, I don't think that it's written with, um, I don't think Congress generally, and I've said this before, you know, I have growing concerns about America's privacy rights under our current technological reality, much less the fact that it changes every six months or less. So no, I think that, you know, for better or for worse, The efforts of WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden have showed that the United States government ability to surveil its citizens is greater than most would be comfortable with. But people sort of feel powerless. And I think honestly, I think congressmen are just totally intimidated by the process and the technology, a lot of them. But I, you know, and if you can, if you, you know, have to fight like fight to the nail to get one single bill passed at the it's just I feel like we're always going to be constantly playing catch up but that doesn't change the fact that I think right now it's not written very well and it needs to be reformulated for changing technologies and changing surveillance techniques and changing and growing concerns about American citizens privacy for sure
0: What about you? I think I probably would vote to reauthorize it. I think I don't disagree with any of what you just said. On balance, what I have read about the FISA court gives me some comfort. What I have seen from uh, the NSA and the FBI gives me some comfort. I I think that we have to have, I don't, let me say it this way. I think the American public demands the level of security that we have in our country. I do not think that anyone reasonably would trade off their security for additional layers of privacy. Now, I really respect and admire people like Rand Paul who fight this stuff tooth and nail constantly. And I think that's important. And I hope that they continue to do it because you need those voices, right? You don't want to creep up on overreach. I think though that they're trying to balance these interests and it's a hard balance. I agree with you that we need to catch up with the technology We need to target as narrowly as possible. I don't know how much of that is law versus technology, though. I mean, I would want to sit in a lot of hearings on this to really understand more than I do today, but knowing what I know today, I probably would vote for reauthorization. And I found two really good opposing perspectives on that that we'll put in the show notes. One arguing strongly in favor of reauthorization and one arguing strongly against it so that people can make up their own minds. I mean, I think this is one where reasonable minds can differ. But if I think about what I would have on my mind as a person sitting a representative in Congress, I don't think that my constituents would actually say no, it it would be okay with us if you missed something because we'd rather have greater privacy rights.
1: Yeah, but I refuse to believe that that's our choice. I think that's a false binary. I agree with you. Yeah, I'm not, I I don't think that we, I, I refuse to believe that my only choice is giving up my security or my privacy. I think they're not trying hard enough because nobody's demanding it. Now, do I think that the American public believes that binary? Yeah, I do. I think they have bought the narrative that you have to make these choices to stay safe. But I think that's a false narrative. And unfortunately, though, I think until the the public decides that we're sacrificing uh, too much privacy and that we demand a higher level of privacy and the same level of security, and it's their jobs to figure out how to give that to us, then I think it'll stay the same. But I don't think that that is the reality. I think that if right now... We are all, not just Congress, all of us are intimidated by the reality in which we exist. And, you know, this guy was talking about, like, we, you know, we all have sort of privacy concerns about our cell phones, but we don't want it to be an expensive paperweight. We want to be able to use it. And right now we have decided that to have this increasing technology in our life, we have to make these sacrifices. But I think there's a growing movement and and strong, intelligent voices saying, no, that's not the choice we have to make as a society. And I hope that that's true in surveillance as well as many other areas.
0: I agree with you that it is a false binary. I also think, though, that that is the perception. And so I would not want to remove tools from the intelligence community. I also would not want to leave a vacuum that creates, I think there's a there's a thought that if you take away some of these restrictions from FISA, do you have the executive branch going rogue, right? And, and doing what it needs. to I think it's this balancing act of we want to have these laws. We want to have this framework. We want to give the court some power and oversight. We also want to make sure that the executive can do what it needs to do, but not do more than it needs to do. And I don't know how much of the problem is within the language of the statute versus execution. It feels to me like the statute is pretty well crafted and that the execution might be where there is a need for perhaps additional oversight, perhaps additional technologies. Um, I, I don't know. That's why I would want to sit in days of hearings on this before I voted. But, you know, on balance, I think that, I think that. The government has done like a decent job of trying to figure out how to handle the need to collect all this information while protecting the privacy of American people. I think you did an excellent job on the
1: FISA. Do you feel like we covered all our bases?
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think that we've covered all the bases that I understand today,
1: (laughs) (laughs) knowing that it is a great, big, complex world. So next up in the heels, we're going to be talking about what's on our mind besides politics.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. on your mind, Beth? Very little besides food. Um, I was telling Sarah before we started recording that I am currently the best cook on earth. And that is because my family and I have not eaten for about a week because we all had the flu. So now everything that I make is incredibly delicious. I have a new love affair with parsnips. I love parsnips. Parsnips are delicious. I am crazy about parsnips right now. Yeah, they're great. So so that's I today I made like parsnips and onions and carrots and barley and this really good chicken and had it all together. It was fantastic. I'm just trying to cook as well. But my most excellent creation, which I shared on my personal Instagram page, is I, I love cobblers. I mean, I'm Southern. And Chad and I were talking about how the emoji makers really need iced tea and cobbler emoji. <laughs> that would be helpful to those of us who live in the South. But I... Did a cobbler with bananas and peanut butter and chocolate, and it was to die for.
1: It sounds so good. I love a good cobbler. Also, like dumplings, like where you like just cook mm-hmm. a dumpling in the like. There's a blueberry dumpling recipe that I'll try to find and put in the show notes. It's really good. It's like a chicken. Only instead of doing it with chicken, you do it with blueberries. It's delicious.
0: Mm-hmm. I love a dumpling too. Really, there's not anything that involves dough that I don't love.
1: Although, can I say this? I had a friend of mine that went to New York City, and they have like a, cho- a cookie dough rest like a cookie dough shop where you go and get big cups of cookie dough and that makes me want to throw up and I love chocolate chip cookies and I occasionally like a nice little cho- uh, cookie dough situation but like a cup of cookie dough is so gross to me
0: oh I could do a cup of cookie no dough. no here's another thing so like on the savory end of dough that I made before we got sick which is fabulous I made and we can link this recipe up I made um this pizza dough Um, with asparagus on top and it was outstanding it was just pizza dough and then shaved asparagus and parmesan oh i think nicholas used to make something really similar to that and it was really really, really really good good. so i am still in a,
1: a holding pattern in this this real estate situation trying to buy a new house we'll see how it goes um, I also what I'm actually thinking about is I finished two books on modern Mrs. Darcy's book club this month for March. She picks a main book, which is A Piece of the World. It was a really, really great book about um a famous painting called Christina's World. She sort of fictionalized the account of the woman who the painting was based on and it was really good. This woman had a genetic disorder that slowly crippled her and made her uh unable to walk and so she did a really beautiful job of painting that picture. And the book was great. It was Christina Klein Baker, who also wrote a great book called Orphan Train. So I finished that book. And then in, in Modern Mrs. Darcy, Anne always does this really great thing where she does a flight and she'll pick like three other books. Like if you want to just keep sort of on that same trajectory, she'll give you some other books to read. And one of them was called The World, the, the War That Saved My Life. It's a young adult novel about a young girl who has a club foot and who escapes a uh, really awful abusive situation with her mother to the country during world war ii when they would send the kids out of london and it would i read it in a day and it was so both of them were so good and sort of interesting perspectives from both well christina all the way grows up but um, both girls sort of the idea of what it would be like to have these physical ailments especially as young women in the early 20th century and they were just both really really good and well done and i cried a lot and i just love a good novel so much so modern mrs darcy's book club check it out guys she picks good ones
0: i have strong and ugly jealousy over your book reading i really do you just gotta Someday do it i'm gonna read books like you You do. just gotta
1: do it matt my, my husband i've converted him last year he read three books all year long and basically because i just put them in his hands and was like read this book right now or i won't talk to you ever again but this year he's he read that same article i talked about that was just like you know, instead of picking up your phone, just pick up a book. And he's already read three books this year. That's his equal of all last year. I've already read thirteen books this year. I'm pretty proud of myself. That is
0: awesome. Yeah, I just, I just read. I don't. I don't watch TV I don't either. Know how? I don't know how we would do this show if I read books and the time that I spend on my phone because I feel like that's how I know what's going <laughs> on in the news. So I don't know. I have to. Find I will some say though, balance. with lint,
1: it's just really real. It's 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 helped me realize by deleting them off my phone that I can. Like I can check it every, you know, five minutes, five to 15 minutes, once an hour, but really I can cover the same territory in 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night. Like not that much happens. I'm just scrolling through likes and a few comments, but like, it's really, you don't, I don't feel that much, you know, efficiency is a, is a, is a strong value of mine. And I don't feel like less way less efficient because I'm not checking it as often. I feel like I'm still know what's going on and in it like I might not be responding as quickly, but I think it's fine. I don't think people are just suffering my absence so badly.
0: I've kind of gotten that way with Facebook. There's really nothing on Facebook that I need in my life, you know, so I can just quickly look at it. Maybe once or twice a day, other than our page, which I try to take a look at more often than that. But Twitter is important to me because I feel like I use Twitter as just a news curator. Yeah, it's hard too because Twitter
1: is not. It's I, you know, following conversations on Twitter is so hard. If you get no if you have like
0: fifty notifications, it's so lost. You're just lost. You're just a lost person. It is, and we do most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> so so we, we can get lost, but it's great. We have thoughtful. Interesting conversation. So it's a good thing to get lost in. Well, I'm very glad you're feeling better. Me too. I made the mistake after Ellen was sick early in the week of saying like whatever today has for me, it will be easier than yesterday, and then what today brought me was the rest of my family getting sick. <laughs> so, lesson learned, and I'm I'm very happy to be on the mend. I'm happy that we're getting close. We think to getting a live event together and all kinds of other good stuff. So, lots of fun things on the horizon. And until Friday,
1: when we'll have a new episode of The Briefcase and some more listener feedback, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsu Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsu Politic, or Instagram at PantSoup Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and paint suit primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at paintsoupoliticshow.com or beth at paintsoupoliticshow.com.